Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talent with me, Fiona Abrahams, where I am deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many talented and skilled individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series, I will be reaching out to the global community, looking at the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on the future of the industry following this pandemic. In my fourth episode of Raw Talent, I am talking with Clemency Buddenhagen, who has enjoyed an illustrious career as a fashion designer, working with iconic luxury brands such as Giorgio Armani, Burberry, Karl Lagerfeld and Rebecca Minkoff. In 2009, she launched her eponymous label, Clemency London, just as the global financial crash exploded. And in 2019, she reawakened the brand with the launch of Clemency London Fine Jewellery. Clemency is a highly dedicated professional with an exceptional eye for creativity and commerciality. She has a terrific work ethic and is also super grounded. Having launched her own label, she also has an intricate understanding of the many different facets and costs involved in running a fashion brand. A few years ago, we collaborated on a startup project and I played a hand in building an amazing team who gelled so well that everyone has remained in touch and actually gone on to do incredible things. Welcome, Clemency. It is so lovely to see you in New York from sunny, windy London. How's the weather out there? We have been basking hey. in sunshine this week. Yeah, hey Fiona, so good to see you. It's a, it's kind of a beautiful day today. I don't think it's been as hot and sunny as it has in London, but oh. uh, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm still in lockdown here in New York, so it's hard to go out. It's compulsory to wear the mask and everyone's got wow. the glasses on too, so... Um, if you're walking around and you're seen without a mask, the police are giving, handing them out. And oh, yeah, wow. it's, it's strange. It's a very strange moment. And it's strange to be in New York City right now. Oh, but imagine. the sun's shining and I'm here and I can't leave yet because all the airports are closed and everything. So as soon as everything's open and we go to the next phase, I'll be, I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back. You'll be back here. It'll be so lovely to see you. It's been ages. So everybody's kind of in the same boat, really. I like it. I like the mask. I like to... You do? Yeah, sorry, there's a bit of a lag here, isn't I there? Know. So it's slow and then there's a real pause. I hope we can manage with that. But we'll manage. I like, the, I like the mask and I like the social distancing. I'd like that to continue. <laughs> I do actually quite like that. I think it's a good rule. Good thing. <laughs> I, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to carry on for quite a while. So, um, yeah, no fear. Yeah, you can, you'll have a while to enjoy that, probably most of this year. Let's see. <laughs> but let's start by sharing with everybody it's how we met. Um, do you remember when we met? <laughs> I know. I can't actually remember when it was. It was quite a few years ago, wasn't it? Five years, maybe? When we... When we when, met. 
When did we meet? Let's start by. Oh, sharing. right. Sorry, because I keep cutting out. Yeah, probably. If, no, I feel like it's longer than five years, isn't is it? it? Well, maybe, maybe you're right. I don't know. No. I feel like I've known you forever. I know. I feel the same way, and I, I'm, I'm not sure when it was, but we basically met, and um, with there was a little startup project. And one of those little interim things that had come along in between roles and you were looking for a project and I had this thing that had come along and I think we met through that, didn't we? I think so, yeah. yeah. And then we ended up, it ended up kind of all evolving into um, people that wanted to launch um, a luxury brand and we put a team together, an amazing team, all of us, have, all of whom were all still in contact and the yes. whole thing just blossomed so I think it was that it was yeah that brought, yeah. brought us all together brought us all together and feels like such a long time ago but yeah maybe you're right it was only like five years yeah I think it was about five well I'm glad that we met and I'm glad that you found me through that and we <laughs> stayed good friends absolutely absolutely me too um <laughs> so let's tell everyone where yeah. did you grow up um, what inspired you to work in the fashion industry? How did you get started? Well, I grew up in Yorkshire. I'm yes. from Leeds originally, um, oh, which is such an, yeah, it's such an amazing city. It's such a big it's university exciting. city. And yes. growing up there with the subculture and live music, it was, it was exciting. There was so much going on. Like, the arts, all the cultural events happening. It was like one, the city of culture one year. And I just remember it being so exciting. And I was very involved with music and seeing a lot of live bands. Um, I suppose that really got me interested in fashion. I, you know, the, it's interlinked somehow. Yes, I mean, it, the it whole really youth is actually. Because, yeah. you know, we have, we share such similar... Um, there's there's so many similarities in in our stories because when I was growing up, I grew up in um, in Surrey and right. I spent a lot of my youth sort of haunting Kingston and Richmond and hanging yeah. out in clubs and we used to go clubbing from quite a young age and when I did my um, OND at uh, back in the day at one of the local colleges. We so it was in the era of like Michael Jackson and you know and Five Star and all sorts of uh, <laughs> aspirational bands. I know it's hilarious. Yeah. We were like so besotted with all these people. You know, we right. really, before the days of the internet and all the things that we have now. You would be stalking the phone lines to get concert tickets. We saw virtually everybody. And yeah. um, one of the things when we went clubbing is that we always wanted to, we were so fixated on what we wore and what we looked like as you are when you're like 17, 18. And yeah. once we'd learned to sew and pant and cut, me and my friend um, started making um, clothes to go clubbing in. And we'd look at what the stars were wearing and how amazing they looked. And we'd make our version. So we did this black bolero it's <laughs> like this big collar so cool. and it had like yeah. a red and it sounds hideous today but it had a big it had red braiding going around the revere and properly tailored jacket with a little um a little um squiggly thing to do it up in the middle i've forgotten what those are called like one of those um notchy things like an eye or loop yeah a loop yeah and 
everybody went crazy for these jackets. Um, seriously, you know, we could have gone into production. <laughs> so difficult to make a jacket too with the lapel i don't know how yeah i mean you know considering the amount that we mucked about on the course how we actually were good at even doing anything i don't know we must have just had a natural ability somewhere but we put these jackets together and um yeah people went mad for them it was hilarious (laughs) so yeah that happened Um, I was telling my sister this recently and she said to me, "Um, do you remember that jacket you made me for my 18th birthday? And I'd made her a red bolero jacket with all embroidery on the back. She said to me, I wore that for years and years and years, all through traveling in Australia and doing. Wow, I want to see a photograph of this. I don't, we'll have to see if we've got one. And she said, everybody wanted the jacket. I was just like, oh my God. I and I so I remember doing that and I remember doing all the embroidery on the back of it and <laughs> Yeah. So it's amazing how music all influenced by music, all by, you know, music and who was who the bands were at the time and who was big and who wasn't big and yeah, it was it was all about the music. Um, we had a brief interruption there where um, mysteriously the fire brigade in New York appeared outside Clements's building, stuck a ladder up to the top floor where she is and are doing a, are doing a drill. Um, we had no idea that was a thing and it's just as well that she's fully clothed and sitting talking to me. But what a strange thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? <laughs> It was. I'm surprised it's allowed. I'm surprised it's allowed. It's going for permission. But, um, I know. Uh, now there, there's a huge ladder right behind me. As there's you can a huge see. ladder. Absolutely. So, um. <laughs> there's also a skylight right above me. So as soon as they get to the roof, they're going to be able to look down. <laughs> they're going to be down inside. So it's, it's a little bit of a, yeah, invasion. <laughs> absolutely oh well this is going to be interesting let's see what happens so there'll probably be somebody waving in a minute through i can see the little round window there'll be sort of like a hand waving with a fireman's face smiling through it (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway moving on from like the music scene of the 90s and how everything was very music inspired so that kind of got you started as well on your career path into fashion well, I think so, yeah. I mean, my parents never gave me any money and they always said you have to work um, if you want to buy clothes, whatever, go out. Um, so I started working when I was quite young, just a Saturday job while I was at yes. schools. Me too. So I worked in a hairdresser's and it was very cool hairdresser's, which was a new hairdresser's that had just opened. It was near Leeds University. And the guy who opened it was this really cool guy. So on a weekend, on a Saturday, I'd work there. And everybody who worked there was really into fashion, very cool. People were hanging out outside. It was, it, it was really good fun. I mean, I was Aww. doing nothing. I was washing hair and things <laughs> like that. But um, they used to go to this club uh, called The Warehouse in Leeds, which was, you know, a really cool club after work on a Saturday, and I used to go with them. I was only, I think, 14. 
um, but they were all really cool and we'd go there. And I remember the first time we went, um, I don't know how I managed to get in. Maybe I looked older because I'm so tall or I'd wear makeup or, you know, be, you know, borrowing clothes from there. It was amazing the things we did back then. I did the same thing. I used to go clubbing when I was 15 and I used to pretend I was going to my friend Suzanne's house on a Monday night. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so we went there and R.E.M. were playing. Oh, wow. R.E.M. It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I was really into kind of R.E.M. and, you know, kind of more, not golf music, but I like The Clash, more like punk and okay. that kind of thing. The Cure a little bit later. Oh. Um, See, I was on the soul but, side of it. We were into the soul Yeah, thing. I did a little bit later. Oh. I think you were more of a... Um, a new romantic with your blazer. No, that sounds like that it little crop blazer sounds yeah. more like the Definitely. new romantic. I was Definitely. more of an REM girl with my kind of Levi's and oh, <laughs> Converse, Definitely. that kind of thing, biker jacket, bit of a tomboy kind of look. Um, so that was amazing. And I remember... Um, my mom, I was very specific. I didn't buy a lot of clothes, but I really knew what I wanted. And I really wanted to have like 501s with a thing then. Oh, when I was they were massive. 14, Everybody needed the Levi's. Yeah. And I don't know if that was from advertising on the television, whatever. I remember there was like I lots think so. of I don't know. Yeah. We didn't really I mean, 501s were the television. only jean for years, weren't they? That was all. Well, we, well, I had to have vintage ones. So my mum would actually drive me from Leeds to Manchester. And there's this, oh, I'm not sure if it's still there, um, Aflex Palace. It's probably really cheesy now. It's probably like Camden or something. But <laughs> then it was very cool. And they had stacks and stacks of vintage Levi's 501s. So my mum was very patient. She would drive me there. And she would wait the entire day for me to try about 500 pairs oh, on. I did exactly get the right the one because I had to have the right wash, the right, the right wash, the right fit. length, the right look. I did exactly. Yeah, the same. not too many tears in them. It had to be just right. You know, sometimes I'd have to lay on the floor to fasten them if I yes. wanted them kind of smaller. Because it was before the days of stretch, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. And um, it was just really difficult to get this specific one and to drive to another city to try and find these vintage ones. I could have bought new ones, but I had to have the vintage ones. So anyway, <laughs> we get those. <laughs> we get those. And then the whole kind of procedure, the whole, whole idea was to shrink them to your body. So we fill the bath, yes. the bathtub. And sit in there in cold water yes, uh, with the jeans on. Yes, I remember. So they would shrink. They would shrink to yeah. fit your body. So it was like a whole process that I had to go through just to have the most perfect vintage pair of jeans. And I see now when I look at Luca, like my son Luca, and how specific he is. If there's something that he wants, he will go to the end of the earth to find the perfect one because yeah. it has to be spot on. And it, yeah. You know, this is, what, uh, this, is, this is what I did. So, wow. yeah, I suppose I was always interested, um, but not over the top buying lots of things, but I think I was influenced by the whole youth culture, subculture, music, yeah. and because going out to and there were very yeah. specific trends. I mean, do you remember the burgundy leather jacket trend? 
So I remember nagging and nagging and nagging and nagging my dad. My mum would never take us anywhere for clothes shopping. She refused. So my dad would because he liked clothes. So mm-hmm. we, I, I literally nagged him to death to take me to Wembley Market to go and get this very specific burgundy bla- leather blazer with one bo- single button everybody wore them they were like the epitome of cool and if you didn't have one you stood up like a sore thumb um, I, I didn't have one maybe they, they didn't have them in the north the local rough comprehensive you this is what you needed to wear and it yeah. was like I, I've never forgotten going to the market the smell of the leather looking for this very specific jacket, trying to find exactly the right shade and skin and fit. And, oh, my goodness, what a palaver. And he bought me this jacket. <laughs> Vintage finds. Vintage finds are still oh. so good now to, to get your hands on, getting the perfect one. I, I do remember, too, even earlier than this, maybe I was even about 10 or 11, really wanting a um, Harrington jacket. Do you remember oh, those? Harrington's. The, you had them in black or the burgundy. That's what reminded me, the burgundy yes, when you said the burgundy leather. But they were kind of cotton with the plaid, the tartan yeah. inside, the red tartan. I remember that. And they were all, that all derived from ska music. And I remember oh, really yeah, being into yeah. ska music, like, the specials and the specials. English beat and yeah. Madness was the more Madness. commercial one. But uh, the specials, they were really okay. kind of progressive yeah. at that they time. And the whole start of, yeah, the scar of that kind yeah. of subculture. And it was yeah, very cool. And, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll remind, I'm going to remind you of an even funnier early trend that um, is going to have you in hysterics. So I can remember at junior school, God knows how old I was. I haven't got a clue. Yeah. 10 maybe. Um, do you remember when Fame came out? <laughs> I wasn't a Fame type, kind of. I, I, oh, I don't think but I... You remember it, don't you? I know what it is, yeah. Yeah, it was like that yeah. big thing on TV. So we thought that was yeah. amazing. And the only one of the only places my mum would take us to shop because she needed to get like base, just basics for the kids was C&A. And yes. And it was the most hideous experience. I hated the place. But... Um, on by, by some strange, bizarre fluke, they'd cottoned on to the whole fame thing and they'd got these grey, so it meant grey mile um, tracksuit material became massive overnight. Oh, I do remember. That, I remember the sweatshirt. Everybody wore like sweatshirt jackets and sweatshirt yeah. bottoms and it was like huge and that went on for quite a while and I somehow it's CNA of all the most ridiculous places got my hand on a on a, on a little mini skirt made of grey marl jersey that had fame written on the hem and all the kids went crazy for it <laughs> uh, <laughs> you were a nicer girl than me I was more of a tomboy oh, Harrington jacket and I remember buying no. separately this long uh, kind of what do they call them? Badges. You know, those um, used to sew them on. They were badges, like... Badges, uh, yes. I remember sewing yeah, the badges on. Like yes. a transfer. You could iron them yes, on. Yes, yes. I did all that. On. And it I was this huge one. Which I had, ones. Yeah. <laughs> and it was madness. And it was all the, you know, the black yeah. and white check, like the yes. bands now. The whole the, for ages, the whole sewing, the, the whole badges thing. I remember that. Yeah, and the little clip-on badges with all of the kind of two-tone and all of this yes, kind of movement right. which was that's happening. Right. 
yeah and again you'd have them all over your bag (laughs) yeah and again yeah I remember the bag Bag. I had the military bag you know those (laughs) military ones vintage ones yeah Uh, I mean the blue blue washed out and you put all the my school was very strict with the uniform but then you could have the bag and that was crazy or you couldn't even have the jacket it wasn't allowed but uh I was very lucky I went to the roughest comprehensive school you could possibly find had a terrible education and as you know horrendous bullying and um I I just rebelled and wore all sorts of crazy things we got away with everything there because they were just I mean, they couldn't teach, let alone manage what people wore. So some of the things that people rocked up in were hysterical. I remember going to school for a whole year wearing these really awful, bright electric blue boots that me and my friend thought were fantastic, that we bought in fake shoes. <laughs> and they were sort of um, calf length. Um, they scrunched down and they had little heels and we tottered around the school in those for a whole year. And they were, I thought, I came across a photo of us in them um, some time ago. And I was just like, oh my God, what on earth? I mean, it completely broke all the uniform rules, obviously. They were yeah. ridiculous. And we brought them to school for a year. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know, it's so funny. Well, anyway, yeah, I mean, my school was quite, yeah, my school <laughs> was quite strict. Yeah, my high school was quite strict with uniform, yeah. but uh, and it was a nice one. It was navy blue, which I oh, liked. I had, nice. I, I kind of really enjoyed the uniform, but we had to go to like an allocated uniform, uniform place. Shop. Yes, it's most decent. Um, and you know, we had to have the navy blue skirt. But they would all be like, I go with my mum and they'd be all a strange shape with like hips on or too long yes, or really matronly. Yeah. So I would. I remember I'd be always complaining. My mum is really good at sewing. She's really good seamstress. And she used to take it in for me and take it up. I mean, you know, it had to touch our knees, but she used to make it really fitted, so it was a really tight one. Um, (laughs) Then I'd have to have the navy blue sweater, but I'd want one really oversized. And she'd be like, no, no, you can't be too sloppy. I'm like, no, 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 it's not. I'll make it look smart. Um, but I'd have to get like an extra, extra large. And then I'd have this super tight pencil skirt. Yeah. And then as soon as we do, we do inspections in the morning to make sure nobody was wearing any makeup, not that we would, uh, or nail varnish or jewelry or earrings. That's how strict it was. Wow. And um, as soon as we left assembly, whatever, we would go outside and roll up the skirt. So the skirt was kind of really tight and short and this oversized. <laughs> So it was kind of cool, and I I see like the boys' girlfriends, fr- just friends who are girls who come around to the house, and they've got these big sweatshirts on and cute little skirts or jeans, and they seem like they have that tomboy, cool little edge, and it just yeah. reminds me of the same vibe, same vibe. you know. It hasn't changed, has you know. It? I mean, it wasn't trying to be sexy or anything it was, no, it was just trying to be cool you didn't it was want trying to, to look like you belong yeah it was all about belonging wasn't it yeah it was I don't know I mean it was just trying to be in fashion or, yeah 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 absolutely and you always wanted to be the one that had the best look <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to wear those horrible skirts and no, you know really grim or prissy like weird v-neck sweater in a you know 
12 gauge when I could have like a nice cable if my mom was feeling yeah, generous. <laughs> generous. Yes. <laughs> that's so funny I think she understood I think she understood but that she had her boundaries you know I had to stretch out those sweaters a little bit and uh, roll up the skirt yes absolutely yeah I think you know I think you're absolutely right music subculture huge influences for sure and so you got you went to university where did you go I went to St Martin's School of Art Wow. And I did the four-year course um, in fashion design. So Lovely. that was really amazing. It was a really good time. Like Alexander McQueen was there. So he was on the yeah. MA while I was on the BA. Um, my year, there was Stella McCartney, uh, Giles, Giles Deacon. Yeah. Um, I don't know, a lot, a lot of people in that year. So it was really good fun. And everybody yeah. used to hang out together and... Obviously, you know, nobody knew who Alexander McQueen was then, so we no. would go to the coach well, and horses in Soho and just hang out yeah, and yeah, yeah. have um, a gay club. Oh, yeah. yeah. What, no, I mean, what an illustrious crowd to be um, part of. That's incredible. Yes, You're also absolutely. talented. So, yeah, no, it's quite something. I think there's a yeah. – I went to Epsom and I did the tailoring course there. And yeah. there's a few of us still knocking around. So um, I was in the same class as Nicholas Oakwell, who set up Nicholas right. Oakwell, and makes these like amazing ethereal gowns, which are just stunning. They've been worn by all sorts of people. Um, yeah, and he's amazing. Up sort of becoming this amazing couturier. But he's created some of the most stunning, stunning dresses. Very. Um, movie star inspired when you think yes. back to all the films Glamorous. of the yeah the glam eras of the 1940s 50s 60s um yeah he produces beautiful stuff so he's still around and there's a few people also working within um on the retail side for some of the big uh department stores or retailers uh, that are still around so Kate Crossy who is so talented has an amazing eye for commercial product so I'm chatting to her next week as well on the podcast series. Oh, so, great. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. That's so good. there's a few people still around, still out there. Yeah. And what do you think was the driving force at the start of your career? Why did you go into design? What made you want to study fashion design specifically? Well, I think, like I said before, because I was so influenced by music yeah. and um from that obviously the fashion side was super important because I would be going out I'd be going to see live music so I was exposed to like an REM and things like that so you know I was exposed to like international kind of culture and fashion and looks and it, it was I, I think it just made me excited to be able to have the idea of being able to do a career by designing clothes and I loved drawing um I was good at art at school and yeah. I don't know yeah Aww. I just uh, fell into it I suppose yeah, from then. Amazing. But, um, I know when I did my GCSEs I um I did lots of fashion sketches. I mean it wasn't yeah. part of the curriculum or anything. In fact, mainly my whole class was boys. Oh, wow. Um yeah, it was really strange who selected art. And I never did sewing. We had a choice of doing carpentry 
or sewing, and I chose carpentry. So I I was talking about this with someone the other day because I had this great balsa wood thing. And I was like, oh my, this plane, this glider. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so great. And I was explaining, I was never that interested in doing the sewing. I was more craft. I don't know, using my hands and everything. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah. From then I thought, you know, doing the fashion sketches for my GCSEs, uh, but my father um, saved a scrapbook. Um, he'd saved it. I, I don't even remember it. He sent it to me from when I was seven years old. And it had like super neat handwriting with me saying, you know, my name and seven years old. And there was lots of little fashion drawings in there, oh. like kind of stick, stick people. But, you know, with the, there'd be three stick women one blonde, one brunette, one redhead on one page, for example. Oh, and then all the clothes underneath. So oh, wow. the, the dress and the shoes and the underwear, like the, you know, the bra and knickers. Yeah, so this everything all started there. The shoes. Like really thinking of it out and color oh. coordinating. Oh, for, wow. Um, for the hair color. So the redhead had this beautiful green and the brunette had, you know, it, so I was obviously thinking, I don't remember it, but when I see it, I'm thinking, gosh, it's amazing you know, it's, you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's something innate. I don't know. Yeah. That's incredible. I remember um, growing up being given scraps of fabric from my nan or my auntie and yeah. um, I basically um, created clothes for my dolls and my mom was absolutely shocked and it was all proper wow, that's great <laughs> so yeah that's amazing um, funny how these things get started isn't it um, yeah and that's such a talent to have like my mom is so good at sewing I mean she would do those things she would make our clothes and make the things for my sister's dolls and things I had a skateboard my sister had barbies and things but um yeah, I always think it's such a talent to to be able to do that. And I always felt when yeah. I was younger, I never had patience. I was more, more patient doing carpentry than doing yeah. things. I like so I always think it's a talent, which, yeah, yeah. I really enjoy carpentry. I remember at university making, I think it was a college, um, we, one of the modules had involved carpentry. And I remember making a cube. I don't know what the cube was for, but I remember the teacher saying, that's this cube that you've made it is yes. in terms of it, the way it measures is absolutely perfect and he was like in love with this cube <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite funny that was just really bizarre and I was like I didn't yeah, really no. care and I was like I just had fun like measuring it all and getting it all accurate and I really took to heart what he'd said <laughs> about how <laughs> he needed to create it and how it all needed to be completely square and he was just blown away by the fact this thing measured exactly so it was point on in every direction so yeah. it was obviously a fluke the engineering <laughs> of this yeah precision a bit of precision engineering at college yeah so um <laughs> how did you get started when you left university what was your first job um my first job was with Giorgio Armani um yeah. in Milan so okay. It was it was the nineties, was it the nineties? Yeah, it was the early nineties. So uh, Armani was the big one then. I mean, it he was, was the the one that everybody it wanted was very to work prestigious. for him. 
Yeah, amazing shows. Everyone was there on the front yes. row, all these Hollywood stars, the celebrities. Um, so I just, um, he was the only one I wanted to work for. And I heard that, you know, he was, he always hired people from St. Martin's. Yes. So I wrote him a letter, a handwritten letter, and sent it to him directly saying that I'd just graduated. I think maybe I'd put a couple of photocopies of my sketches or something in there. Very basic. Um, and sent it to Milan. <laughs> I don't know. I must have just, I got the address. I don't know. Somehow. And sent it to him. And they called me for an interview, oh. which was amazing. So I went to Milan and I met with Silvana Armani, which is Armani's niece. And she yeah. was in charge of all of the, super nice, in charge of all of Emporio Armani. Um, so I met with her and she liked my work and she spoke really good English. Um, oh, wow. She said, can you come back tomorrow and meet with Mr. Armani? Um, wow. So I said, yeah, of course. And she said, well, he doesn't speak English, though. He doesn't like English, doesn't particularly like English people, oh. <laughs> which was not great, which didn't That's make me feel very <laughs> good. Um, so how's your Italian? Yeah. I was saying, well, try to study a little bit before I came here, but not enough to have a conversation, I don't think, with Giorgio Armani. So um, she said, okay, if you speak any other languages, like French or something, do that. So I met Armani the next day and we had to speak in French and I just had school French. Um, we did the whole interview and at the end, he, it was like a Friday, at the end of it, he said, okay, start on Monday. So wow. I was like, amazing. So wow. yeah, so I, I was already in Milan, so I just stayed. Uh, I didn't really have anything. I'd been at university for four years, so I didn't have any belongings or any, anything. I was just there and I stayed. And I stayed wow. and you know, found an apartment and worked there for five or six years, six years, I think, yeah. uh, with him, directly beside him. And, wow. you know, he was tough at the time because I was in my 20s, early 20s. I thought, gosh, he's really tough. He's a real workaholic. Um, you know, this is intense. But later, you know, when I'd worked for different people, I realized that he was amazing. And so it was such a great experience. You know, he was yes. so passionate and really hands-on and did the work himself, you know, not amazing. paying everybody else so to do the great work. grounding for you. It was really great. And, he, yeah. you know, he was really kind of sensitive to different fabrics. He had a beautiful aesthetic. So we would choose fabrics together. I would do all the fittings with him. So his fits were incredible. I mean, just the way he would study an outfit on the model's body, would do all the fittings on the catwalk. And um, I would be there passing the pins to him. That's, oh, that was wow. my job. But that was yeah. an honor. To pass the pins as my first job there on the I mean I'd sketch and design and do other yeah, things too yeah but um yeah I could to see involved, everything that was going you on know, close up and to be able to observe what an amazing opportunity to see the master yeah, at work like that uh, absolutely and you, you started to see his eye and his sensibility yes. and yes. started to see what he was seeing and yes even exactly. you know towards the end of six years you know you you could see what he was going to tweak or change or his aesthetic how a sleeve or how something should hang and 
it was amazing, amazing experience. I can imagine. What a fantastic thing to, to do. And where did you go from there? What, what made you decide to leave and move on? Was it time? For uh, well, I, I stayed there for, I think, six years. Yeah. And I was headhunted. Okay. To, I was headhunted to work for Calvin Klein oh, in New York City. Uh, and I met my first husband in Milan. So we yeah. both lived and worked in Milan, but he was from New York. Right. So um, we decided to get married and we wanted to go to back, or he wanted to go back to New York. We wanted to, you know, we'd done Milan. That, yeah, that was, so you wanted to go and live it. somewhere so, new. And I was headhunted by a Florian de Saint-Pierre in Paris and she came and they came to Milan and it was like a Saturday I had to do it out of office hours and you know a couple of rounds of interviews and she was very professional and um, I was offered the job um, to I think it was just senior designer or something of Calvin Klein or CK um, and then I was planning we we're excited we we're moving back we just got married and then I found out I was pregnant with my oh, first my son. Uh, so I had to call Florian and she spoke with Calvin. Uh, I said, you know, it was like, a re- I feel so privileged. It's such, it would have been such an honor to work with Calvin. And, you know, I'm sorry to miss the opportunity, but I, I'm also moving back to New York and I'm really excited to be going there and starting a new life. And I'm so happy to be having a baby. And, you know, we're quite young. Um, and he sent me an email, a direct email, and he said, um, congratulations, once you've moved to New York and you've settled down, get back in touch. Um, so, so I did. So I got back in touch with him like over a year later. I stayed at home for a year uh, with both of my children just to be there for them. Um, and I contacted him and I, he called me in for an interview. I was in New York. And we had an interview for about two hours and we didn't speak about fashion once, which was really interesting. Wow. Um, so, what did you talk about? Well, he was super smart and he was really great. He was kind of like my boys say, like um, banter. Yeah, he was about really good. Things. Yeah. So he was a good conversationalist and he was really kind of quizzing me on art, architecture, politics, and he was firing these questions and I was firing back. It was such a great synergy and such a great energy. I thought he was super smart and really interesting. Um, And he offered me a job. He um, made me design director of CK menswear. So I did menswear. I mean, at at Armani, I did women's wear, menswear, everything. So he made me, obviously they had that role open. So um, it was much higher and much better than I was initially like anticipating, but um, he tripled my salary and gave me the job as, you know, CK menswear design director. So that was really amazing. And I got the opportunity to work beside him too. So that was going from Giorgio Armani to Calvin, these like really strong men. I've yes. always worked my career with all these strong men. But I work with yeah. all these strong men and I love tailoring and I love menswear and I'm always like a little bit of a tomboy 
type. So it all kind of made sense, really. Amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. But during the time I was there anyway, he put the company up for sale. So he he was selling the company and he made uh, 200 people redundant, which he had to do. Um, And I was one of the few who actually stayed um, so we were working on all the lines. I remember going to somewhere in the States, like my father-in-law, Texas, I think we went, he's not from there. I don't know why we were there. Father-in-law for Christmas and sketching some evening wear dresses for the, for the show, for the women's wear. And I was originally the, you know, menswear, CK menswear design director. So yeah. we were just working on everything. It was great. And it was everyone pulling together. And um, it was just such a great experience. And it's funny you, sh- you share that at that time because in here in London, I was we were recruiting on his behalf. He actually came over at the point where he was selling the business to PBH. We had started to talk to him. He needed some. He needed to make some very specific hires on two teams: women's juniors and women's wear. And he'd asked us to find people. So we did. And they were hired into the business just before it was sold. So, and I remember meeting him at um, St. Martin's Lane Hotel. Just really coincidental that that must have been at the same time. I think so. I think he sold it twice. I think he sold the company twice. He He sold it to Gus Industries, G-U-S. Yes, that's right. He sold it to Gus. Uh, Which was the first thing. And I think they sold it on to... um, PBH. Yeah, I just remember that Tommy Hilfiger wanted to, he was interested in buying it and they yes. had some kind of rift. This was in the first That's round. That's right, in the, the first, first round. round. Yeah. They had some kind of rift and I remember him saying, I was there in the room, that, you know, I would never sell to him. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't want him owning. But I think eventually he did. He did. Because I think That's Tommy right. Hilfiger is all part yeah. of the PBH, isn't it? So yeah. in a strange twist of fate, uh, yeah. it seemed yeah, like he did what get his hands on it in the yeah. end. But um, it was Calvin's yeah. baby and he wanted it to go to the right people. And yeah. I mean, Calvin is such an amazing, clear vision and such a, a strong aesthetic that, you know, it, it's really hard to to continue that kind of legacy, I think. Oh, and that's really kind of absorbed in the DNA and really understand his mind. And it wasn't just about the clothes. It was like I said in the interview, it was about architecture and, you know, art and music and so yes. many different influences. Yes. Um, I mean, either, everything was so interesting there. We would do our seasonal color card and it was always shades of black, which used to make me <laughs> laugh when I first went there because I went from Armani with all of the neutrals. So everything was like shades of beige or gray, you know, 50 shades of gray yes. and beige to <laughs> only shades, shades of black. Of black. So yes. we would be there, we'd be like, Calvin, what do you think this? This is kind of a, a blue black and this is a kind of a and you'd have to really study in the natural daylight to see that hint of some kind of color in there but it it was so refined and so beautiful that it was kind of it, I think it's harder to design that way than it is to have the freedom to add things on and yeah. you know 
improvise. He was a purist. Um, he was such a purist, wasn't he? You know, such a purist, yeah. such a minimalist, and yeah. just to, to work with that restraint yes. was was harder to design than Absolutely. any other harder. company. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was, yeah, it was perfect. Incredible. What do you think, um, you know, looking at your career experience have been the major learnings over the years? Well, I I think um, if I could go back, (laughs) I would have probably... Yeah. I mean, just (laughs) if I was as a a learning curve, um, I would probably have um, stuck it out a little bit longer in all of the places. You know, I stayed in all the places a long time. But, you know, when I left Armani, he was upset. He was very upset. That's another story. You were his protégé. I think I might have told you this story before. I'm not going to say this. But he was upset. I was leaving. And, you know, maybe I could have stayed there another five years and learned more. But, you know, I also had a good opportunity with Calvin. And, you know, I think maybe sometimes I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I'm working 24 hours a day. and They're changing this. They're changing that. And, you know, it's you get frustrated. And I think now I've learned to kind of, I can't remember the idiom, like bend with the willow or whatever, you know, like go with the flow and take on board everyone's opinions and adapt that and be flexible. I think when you're younger, you're also like giving your heart and soul to everything. And you're like, gosh, you know, I'm presenting this, this is it. Somebody wants to change it. Someone, you know, it's like making a beautiful meal all day and giving it to someone and they put loads of salt and pepper on top of it you know what I mean it's like someone adding or taking away yeah and I think when you're younger you take that to heart but I think my word of advice would be you know everybody's opinion matters everybody's there doing their jobs and just to have the flexibility and to be versatile because I think you know not take things to heart, be versatile. Yeah, you've got to be resilient, um, I think. I think it's very, yes. it's, it's very interesting that you say that because actually I've, I've had that, I've heard that from lots of people in the industry who have, you know, yeah. whether they've been in the industry for a long time or whether they haven't, but they've moved around a lot. I've had candidates say to me over the years, I actually realised that I've moved around too much or I should have stayed longer at this job or I should have stayed longer at that job. And I thought the grass was greener because someone approached me about this or a friend went there and said, you should come here. And actually they said, then said, would say in hindsight, I shouldn't have done. I should have just stayed where I was because I was doing well and I just should have carried on. So I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's useful, youthful enthusiasm that we all have early on in our careers. Um, yes. We want to try true. everything but we don't yeah. actually realize that we are where we need to be already. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just, just patience. And, patience. You know, yeah. Learning. And you know? You know, youth is impatient. It's like that people want to learn everything immediately. And actually there is a lot to be said for bedding down in a role and really building the experience. So yeah, it's an interesting yeah. Um, yeah, and I did. I mean, I must say, I spent a lot of years. Yes, my goodness. But, you know, also I was, yeah, and I was being headhunted for other roles, and that's why I moved on. But um, 
You know, I even leaving Burberry, I remember when I was leaving, it was for a good opportunity, uh, another creative director role. I remember, you know, then trying to convince me to stay and saying, you know, we've got big plans, things are changing, we want you, we've got big ideas. But I just felt like I was ready to move on to the next thing when really, yeah. I, you know, that, for example, I should have maybe... Yeah you know, stayed with it. But I mean, I don't regret anything. But if I have to give some advice, I would say be more patient than I was and be more versatile and flexible and go with the flow. And, you know, be passionate. Give everything you've got for everything you're doing. Give everything away, you know, just just <laughs> with, with all your passion. And if someone comes and changes it, just saying, okay, well, you know, they're changing it because their experience is coming in. They, you know, they've got a sales history to, you know, it, it's, uh, it all makes sense in the big picture. Absolutely. And I think when you get a bit older and you kind of work more closely with these other components, these other people, you start to appreciate it and understand it and want to be working with them because yes. they're like such a valuable asset to yes. make, you know, to generate sales at the end of the day. It's not just you doing something creative yeah. and amazing. It Absolutely. has to sell. It has to be timeless or substantial in some way. Absolutely. It must have longevity, particularly in today's yes. What do you think it is that makes you great at what you do? How would you describe sort of your main skill set? Um, I would say probably to stay in current. I mean, yeah. I... Love, I find references everywhere. And I'm also kind of so into art, you know, like Calvin, so into yeah. art and architecture and music still and the theater. Yeah. Uh, I go to the theater all the time, film, dance, going to the ballet. A lot of creative inspiration. Yeah. I, I mean, I just feel like I'm constantly absorbing things. And I think I'm only as good as I am, because I'm absorbing so much information wherever I am. If I'm in nature, if I, like yesterday I walked to the water, to the, you know, Battery Park, and the sun was hitting the water and the waves were creating, and it, it was beautiful. And I took a little video, and it was like such a beautiful texture. I sent it to oh. one of my sons. It's like, it looks like a piece of fabric or something. But oh. I think it, it's looking outside of yourself and appreciating things and being interested in things. And I think just being current and up to date. And I think as well, having my sons, they're so into everything. Yeah. They're so cultured and they show me things and, you know, introduce me to different things and different genres of films and music and it, art, everything. You yeah. know, they're so creative. And they're I think. Feeding your imagination continually. Yes, yeah. Okay. And I think that's what makes somebody good is having all of that to offer. All those points of reference, absolutely. Yes. Because you're immersed in the, creative, in the creative process and the creative inspiration. Yes. How would you describe your management style? You know, when you're managing teams, you've managed teams of all sizes. How do you like to manage? How do you get the best out of people? Well, I usually have like an open door policy. I don't like the idea of being closed, you know, being stuck in an office and someone's scared to come and ask me a question or they have to email me from, you know, a few feet away or something like that. So I always have that. Um, I mean, I only stay in the office if I need to really focus or, 
you know, create some concepts or really kind of think about something for a while or break off to write some emails. But I prefer um, all-inclusive, like everything's very visual. I find that teams are always very visual and to work in a big open space. So, you know, we have like wall panels where, you know, people are putting inspiration, people are included. I don't think it's all about, I mean, even being a creative director, I think, you know, saying this is my vision, this is it, this is it. I don't think you get the best out of people if you're not including or if you're not giving a clear message where they can, you know, add to that or embellish that in some way because everyone's got their point of difference and their reference and a fresh eye. Um, So I like to have like a visual kind of open environment, even like working with fabric people who can look at, you know, the inspirations on the wall and stick some fabrics, which they're thinking, they're not scared to sit around, you know, in a meeting, someone might be scared to say something, you know, like have an opinion in case somebody is slammed down or, you know, laughed at or whatever. I think if it's there and people are really feeling what you're doing, I think everyone has to have that feeling of the collection of the season, then, you know, someone can stick some fabrics up there. I might like them. I might not. I might get excited about one and say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Let's find something in this direction in these colors or this texture. Or someone might find some prints and it goes up there because it hits with some colors or something. I, you know, I don't agree with micromanaging. And I think that I've worked with a couple of people who do (laughs) micromanage and I don't think you get anything done, not just creatively, but at all. You know, I think... People it's need to have down, some kind of freedom. Yes. Yeah. People need to have freedom. Down. Yeah. Whether they're in accounts or it doesn't in matter. production any, any or role, where, wherever. Yeah. yeah. I think everybody needs to be involved, needs to be inspired. Yeah. And needs to be ex- excited, really. Yeah, uh, and someone coming and asking what you're doing every two minutes is um, a nightmare. I don't think he's a good manager because they're not inspired and looking for things. And, and it's often trust. And adding well. to it. It's trust and panic, I think, that leads to people with micromanaging. Yes. yes. It has the most detrimental effect. So, yeah, it's very important it does. that people yeah. recognize that and put their own insecurities to one side. and do learn to trust others and and let them take responsibility for what they're doing. And, you know, looking at it in the opposite direction, how do you manage up? How do you manage the expectations of the people above you? I think it's, I mean, deadlines, obviously. You know, everybody's working to such strict deadlines and there's a real domino effect, you know, if you're late with one classification or if you're late with you know, fabrics, then your pattern cutting and then production and deliveries, you know, the the whole domino effect is just, you know, crucial. So, you know, sticking to the calendar, uh, respecting that, you know, even if, you know, design team or creative might be, oh gosh, no, we need more time. We need more time to be inspired. I think if you can organize yourself, um, that you can channel everybody's visions and ideas into one stream yeah. and meet deadlines. And I think making sure that everyone's happy from yeah. all departments, yeah. uh, you can see that in the product at the end of the day. Because I think um, you can have like a rushed product from the fabric side because they didn't have time to do that because you're late giving them inspiration or you're late giving them designs or the pattern 
team doesn't have time or, you know, the sales team are missing half the collection for their first appointment. So I think it's respecting everyone and keeping really, you know, to a strict calendar and respecting what that. everyone needs yeah yes. they need it that makes sense absolutely and what are your what are your observations in, in terms of the most uh, the most effective way to be influential when you're working uh, cross functionally how do you how do you like to be inf- influential um i think having a clear vision is super important i mean even when i was younger i would work with people um you know, they were amazing. They were super talented and really kind of experts. But, you know, they would just have some abstract idea of what they're thinking. And you had to guess, <laughs> you had to guess what that was, whether you're in yeah, design, you're in production, lot, you're in, you know, it's, <laughs> it's um, I think to have a clear vision, make sure everybody's on the same page, um, yeah. nurture people too, yeah. I think it, you know, I I think that not everybody is in there, but they're not super confident because, you know, maybe they're coming from a different industry or maybe they're a bit younger or maybe they're a bit older. I don't know. But I think people need to be nurtured or just Thank to feel you. confident to be able to speak out, to be able to, you know, give an opinion. Yes. I think it's super important. And everyone's opinion, I think, is, uh, you know, essential to making a a collection work definitely no I agree what was your best experience if you look at all the different people that you've worked with through your three so you're going to say Carl yeah well, Carl, <laughs> I knew you were going to say Carl like, you know I love Carl I know um, they were all good they were uh, all good they were, well a lot of the a lot of the earlier ones were really good um, yeah. even at the time if I didn't think they were just because I wasn't mature enough to recognize you were just in a different place yeah yeah uh, a different time in my life yeah. or I had young children and trying to travel and juggle things around and be on a plane yeah. somewhere every two minutes so um I it's so hard to say yeah you're right probably Karl Lagerfeld but Burberry <laughs> was amazing Burberry was really great I was there for a lot of years um Christopher was really great. Christopher Bailey, yeah. um, also from Yorkshire. Also from Yorkshire. <laughs> um, yeah. he, yes, yes, another Yorkshire one. And he was very, I mean, there's something so great about Burberry and, you know, being from Yorkshire and all of this and kind of heritage and delving into the archives and the countryside. And oh, I mean, I'm from the big city, I'm super urban, but still this room... <laughs> romantic version of the Brontes and the Yorkshire Dales you know it was great and Rosemary Bravo was there then and she was uh, she was amazing so amazing I mean she is one of the most inspirational people I've ever worked with everybody says that yeah just she was so down to earth she was so unaffected and she had time for everybody. Yeah. She really did have time. She was so says smart. That. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody says that. Whenever I've asked people over the years, I've worked, I've obviously, I know loads and loads and loads and loads of people that have worked at Barbary. Everybody says the same thing. Yeah. She was such an amazing, strong woman with such a great vision and 
I mean, it was such an honor to work with her. Yeah. I remember, you know, I was younger and well, I even had my kids then. And I remember just like one morning, like running to the showroom and she just had her nails done. She was really, you know, very American and outgoing. And she's like, you know, will you get the door for me? Get for her. I don't want to damage my nails. But she was in <laughs> no way like a diva or anything. She was, you know, she probably got the nails done, you know, once every two weeks or whatever, but she had a big meeting, she's coming in. I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, it's such an honor to open this offer. Oh. I remember thinking that's really stupid, but it's not because she's such an amazing woman and she's not a diva and she's right. so, but you know, I'm even happy she asked me to open the door, which sounds oh. a bit dramatic, but nice. um, I, I loved her. I still yeah. do. I think she's yeah. amazing. I've, I think she's she's so well respected. Everybody says the same thing. Yeah. What was your worst experience? Uh, <laughs> I think that's hard. I, I don't I like to one. say names or don't say any names. places. No, no, no names. I, no names. How about a country or a city? I think New yes. York. New York, um, more recently, has been tough you know the industry is very different here it's very commercial yeah there is in a lot of kind of companies a lack of sensibility so people are basically knocking out uh 12 collections a year and a company can have multiple yeah multiple yeah (laughs) yeah Exactly. So they've got multiple classifications, which they're doing on a monthly launching on a monthly basis. So, you know, ready to wear bags, shoes, luggage, watches, jewelry, you name it. Everything you can think of, every product. Yeah. And it becomes like a a little bit of a machine and um, there's no process behind it. There's no, nobody aspires to really create anything New. There's no integrity. There's it's no. lost soul. There's no soul no. because there's there's nothing special about it. Because if we flip back to the days of Armani and all the great iconic designers, yes. it was all about a very specific vision. They they saw something and they they took the essence of the shades of black or the fifty shades of beige or the fifty shades of grey. And yeah. that was the that formed the essence and the inspiration behind the collections. It was it was all about a very specific look, whether it be tailored in a certain way or very minimalistic. Yes. And then you you flip that back to today, where it's all about consumerism, just consumerism. Let's just make money. We don't care what it is. We don't care how. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no identity. Uh, there's no DNA to the brand, and it it really is kind of, you know collections being thrown out there with no substance and yeah. um, you know copying That's hard, isn't it? it's, um, so it's hard to say yeah and i'm not saying it's all companies definitely not no but there's, a, there's certainly a portion the opposite, sure. yeah the yeah, opposite experience absolutely. with Calvin Klein, obviously yeah. um but yeah let me say a city instead of a particular place yeah and i think you know it's a, it's a good example and it's good for people to hear that as well because yeah. it's you know one of the things i've observed over the last um 3 to 5 years is um a huge rise particularly in london of little small little brands where people have had a vision so switching back to our iconic uh, designers of the past People have yes. had a vision, they've decided they want to create a sustainable collection, whether it be 
a day wear, whether it be sports, whether it be lingerie, everybody's put their own little twist on whatever it is they're creating. And they've, because it's so easy to launch a brand online, um, people have found ways to get things produced, even if they don't come from within the industry. So there's this whole emerging scene of small brands that we've seen um, coming up in the UK. So it's, uh, it's interesting because then all of a sudden you've got diversity and we haven't got a high street that's swamped with the same old names, which everybody's super bored of. All of a sudden there's interest, but the interest instead of being on the high street is online. <laughs> so there's definitely a shift going on. That's for exactly. Sure. And yeah. Yeah. And the whole direct consumer, the whole direct... Oh, the consumer gives, the, it's the power yeah, the whole of your business. Yeah. yeah, because they're not beholden to wholesale where they're told yeah. by buyers, oh, well, we only want X, Y, Z, and it needs to look like this. They can get the direct feedback from the consumer and they can evolve their collections accordingly. Once they start to see what fit, what sells, they can get the analytics online and it's all within their control it makes a massive difference yeah yeah Yeah. I think a lot of people yeah are really I mean I think that's the way of the future too the direct just because um you know the department stores you know wholesale they're putting on their they've got their own margins and people are really you know missing out and the designers they're either working on sale on sale or return and you know they don't have the cash flow to do that no. and then we see all of this stock at the end of the season I think season. we're going to see it all collapse <laughs> yeah well it, it is collapsing it is collapsing and, and it thing. has been I mean Neiman Marcus Barney's yeah. you know yeah. it's yeah it's, all, it's all right. hopefully yeah, it was never sustainable and it's all got to, everything's got to operate in a different way. It's all got to be a lot more streamlined for sure. And yeah. sort of thinking about um, people we've been talking about, for you, who would have been your most inspiring manager, somebody that directly managed you? Who would that have been? Um, probably uh, Michelle Smith. Okay. From she was the senior vice president of women's wear at Burberry. Yeah. Um, and she's such an amazing woman. I mean, she had she was older. I mean, not older then. I, think she, I, I can't even say how old she is now. She could even be in her seventies. She might, if she listens to this, might hate me for that. Late sisters, let's say. But she's always on a plane still, and she's got more energy than anyone. She was at Burberry for years. She's really good friends with Rosemary. Yes. And um, she was such a powerful woman, but such a good person. And she really kind of, um, she was my mentor. She still is. I still ask her questions now. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And she was, she's like a a mother figure too. So she was my direct report and she's helped me a lot in my career. Um, She's, she's like family, my my children are so close to her. They love her so much. But she's this tiny little, you know, blonde uh, with these huge platforms because she's so small. But she was always, like, dressed in Burberry Crossum, super cool. I think now she's working at Versace. She, like, Donatella loves her and everybody <laughs> wants her now still, you know. And what did she's you learn really from cool her? She, yeah, and what she's... What did you learn? What what was it that was so great? What inspired you? Apart from the fact that she looks amazing, what what did she teach you? 
I think her way of working and um, right. of teams and the way she would do meetings, the way she would really listen to everybody. I mean, you know, trying to deal in fashion with different personalities and egos and non-egos. You know, she was really smart and gave really good advice and really was a good mentor and helped to kind of guide you in the right direction. You sound very grounded. She was very incredibly grounded, but she comes across as this fantastic, you know, crazy, loud, beautiful, hyper (laughs) American woman from San Francisco with this amazing look. But she is very smart and very, very fair. I think she's one of the fairest people I, she is the fairest person I've ever worked with in fashion. Oh, that's, that's lovely. Cause I think yeah. fairness is very important. What would have been your, your least inspiring boss without naming anybody? Tell me the, tell me the yeah. things about the person that didn't work well. Or maybe more the, more the scenario really. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. I think, um, there's been a couple and I think they've been like offered a job, maybe an interim kind of position um, with a big title, you know, right. maybe CEO or president or something like that. And they've been a little bit more kind of influenced by the title than actually the job they're, they're doing. So it was more about them at the end of the day and less about the people. So you could see the people struggling these collections struggling. They were unable to guide the team. Yeah, they were unable to set themselves apart and really be kind of... Um, In the trenches, like, understanding what was needed to direct proceedings. Yes, yeah. And they were the micromanagers too. Oh, so there was kind of a lack of, a lack... Yeah, so there was kind of a lack of trust in a certain way. Well, definitely, there was a lack of trust yeah, throughout yeah. Everybody on every level because they were just having to check with them and do, you know, 100 meetings a day and just make sure everyone's doing what they said. But it came through in the product that you could cool. see there was a lack of sensibility. There was no passion there. And, um, yeah, I, I, don't th- I don't think it's a good way of working and I've seen it go wrong. But I'm I've not going to say any names. So, yeah. I know, I know, absolutely. It's, uh, it's why hiring, there is an art to hiring the right people and being able to test that out and know that you're getting people into your organisation that are not micromanagers. And for yeah. those people that are micromanagers, it's a case of not running up the career ladder too quickly you know, I exactly. would always say, stick at what you're good at. Don't be tempted to be chasing money or chasing titles because you will fall over at some point. And even if you don't realize it, everybody, everybody sees everything. You may know that you have your insecurities and you may think that no one else knows about them. But actually, everybody knows about them. And that's the thing with all these right. things. I think I've been in the industry for long enough, as you have, yes. to see that. And you hear the same stories when when these individuals do do sort of crop up. You hear the same stories from everybody that's worked with them. So it's very mm-hmm. interesting. So yeah, yeah. I, th- I think ego is a big thing too. I mean, it is. I think if yeah. you have such a big Huge. ego, there's no room to 
to do the job properly. I no, mean, I, I, I exactly. do think that should be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, everything you do is a part of you. So it's, um, doesn't make sense to have that personality, I don't think. In no, it's, counter, it's counterproductive and counterintuitive. It doesn't actually work. You're better yeah. off to hone your skills in what you're good at and be good, really good at something and respected for it than yeah. sort of jumping or elevating yourself into a role that you can't actually do because ultimately you'll disappear, as so many people have from this industry who have mm-hmm. done that. So it's it's definitely better to just keep your feet on the ground and be truthful with yourself. Yes, true. Yes, I think so. And if you can share one or two insights into things that would inspire other people in their careers, what would your advice be? To inspire them? Yeah. I would say go with what you love. Like if there's a certain brand or a certain kind of aesthetic that you relate to, then I think you should... No, not chase that, but that should be kind of your mission to go into the DNA that you really love to do. I mean, I think a lot of people can go into a company, you know, I love tailoring, but I've worked for companies where they do uh, dresses, for example, and I can get into the DNA and into the market research and the sales history and the customer research and really get into that. So I think either start, depends on your personality, if you're versatile and you can get into the whole DNA and really absorb yourself into that, or really go for something that matches your aesthetic and give what you have to give to to that company, I think is um, a good, good way forward. Very good advice. What do you think the industry is going to look like on the other side of this virus? Where do you think we're going to be? (laughs) <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Still stuck in New York City. Million dollar question. Sure. I, know. Else. I but, don't know. You know. For example, I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about everybody I've spoken to so far has said, you know, sustainability, um, not overproducing. Um, the industry's really got to look at what it's doing. It needs to. It needs to condense down. It needs to be working completely differently in terms of seasonality, not producing goods for just production's sake and flooding the world with all these garments that no one wears. It's got to work in accordance with the good of the planet. I've heard a lot of yeah. that. Yeah, me too. And I think um, I think there has to be a lot of value. I think people have to yeah. look at their values uh, when they're looking at the product and um, adapt, adapt and adjust. If it's working more in isolation, working remotely, then, you know, adapt to the environment. You know, my eldest son, Luca, he's at St. Martin's and he's doing his uh, dissertation on catwalks of the future and he's decided on this before the whole coronavirus thing uh the coronavirus pandemic broke out so he was also already thinking in that perspective of like virtual fashion shows and i know there's that korean designer who's made her show like um not virtual reality like a video game which is so relevant to people nowadays and it's amazing I mean it looks so realistic and it's cutting out a lot of expense it's cutting out all of the travel flying around to different cities 
Absolutely. which is going to help the environment. So there's all of this side of the environmentalism and the, the value and, um, yeah, just adapting and changing and going with whatever's on the other side when we come out of all of this. Very interesting. My final question, we're going to end on this note. If you could work for um, any brand, who would be your dream brand? And it doesn't have to be one that exists. It could be something new. It could be your own brand. Well, I love at the moment uh, Jacquemus. So I love Jacquemus and I love the new Bottega, Bottega Veneta. Yeah. Just because I love tailoring and I love that more like tomboy, but, you know, not sexy but sensual it's it people look feminine i mean feminine you're in a menswear suit and cool jewelry and you know i there's i think it's very modern very timeless and it's it's the aesthetic that i've worked with and believed in since i was at martin's and done through armani through burberry everywhere um so probably the new bottega but i am launching my own fine jewelry collection so I'm working on that at the moment so it is fully sustainable and a lot of value and it's all um, ethically sourced so traced all the uh, precious stones are traced from mine to market Um, so I'm going to give some of the proceeds to uh, UNICEF and to Amnesty International and um, yeah I'm working with a gemologist here in the States who invented the first protocol uh, for fair trade mining for jewelry so I'm going to be working yeah so it's really interesting it's really complicated to uh, get all the pieces in place to make it fully sustainable and fully ethically um, as I want it to be. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, that's Exciting. what I'm working on there. Yeah. But again, you know, ad- adapting to, you know, probably direct to consumer and each piece is going to have value. I'm not going to mass produce. Um, it's going to be high jewelry. So, there's going to be custom pieces, limited editions, and also high jewelry. So, you know, Beautiful. taking into consideration all the, the value aspects, like we were talking, adapting to the market. This is something I was working on prior to the pandemic. Um, so yes. hopefully now it will be relevant. Who knows? I mean, who knows what people are going to Let's see. spend money on after all yes. of this. And if fashion or jewelry or family heirlooms are going to be important or I definitely think that charity and giving back and helping others is going to be more important and that is something I want to really focus on instead of you know keeping profits for myself like give it away because I mean after all of this I mean you see so many people suffering so many people who just need help in the world and you know a lot of us are fortunate yeah, so that's amazing. I, I think what you've just said there is so valid. And jumping back into your dream brand, if you were working for a clothing brand or if you were work, if you were just doing your fine jewellery, who would be the three people 
uh, it could be absolutely anybody in the world, it could be famous people, it could be anyone at all. Who would be the three people you'd want to have in your in your team? <laughs> in my team? Yes, <laughs> your team. Um, anyone. I... Well, I think like an amazing ambassador would be amazing in my team, like a Michelle Obama Aww, or something like that nice as choice. an ambassador. Um, yes. I want to connect more with human rights. So um, my dream team would be somebody who is very involved on that side of things, um, somebody who is connected um, with with that. I'm happy with my gemologist. He is my dream team also because he's the one who started the first protocol for, you know, the fair trade mining. And fair trade amazing. Yeah. So I would say a couple of, <laughs> a couple of ambassadors who could help me and um, my gemologist who I, uh, who I already work with. So Amazing. Yeah. Do you have an ambassador in mind? Apart from Michelle Obama, is there one other person that you could name? Think of the person. Um, well, there's a lot of people now doing a lot of things with Amnesty International and with UCEF and, you know, maybe somebody connected with music or with the arts or um, acting, film. I think an ambassador who's an expert in their field but wants to give back and can be influential and recognized, um, I think, is the wave of the future, really. Instead of, you know, just an Instagram influencer, which sells a lot of clothes, sells a lot of jewelry, sells a lot of... Somebody that's got in, actually got um, like mileage behind yeah, like a true talent, yeah. a true somebody really compassionate, somebody who's not doing it for the fame, but someone who's doing it because they believe that they can help and want to help other yeah. people Make the world instead the of going place. follow us around, you know, yeah. that kind of thing, that kind of has to be great value yeah I would like to work with and so people are doing it on all different levels and that is just incredible yeah and I think it's a really valid point I think that's the way things are going to go that you want people that have got the track record and have, have been there and have already been doing it so that the influence of the legacy that they've been creating then has new outlets through which it can travel to help make the world a better place. Yes, yes, well said, yeah, absolutely. That, <laughs> that just came to me. The direction that I would love to, to take it. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this amazing, all your amazing experiences and insights. It's been really, really interesting to hear. And as we were just talking about, I think you're absolutely right that it's all about all of us interconnecting in an authentic way. And anyone promoting product, if, if they have a track record in doing things that are making people's lives better, they are the ambassadors of the future. Absolutely. The greater their reach through all of us, the better society is going to become. Absolutely, yes. And the more opportunity for everybody at every level, and that's really what we want to see. So, yeah, thank you so much for... It's a um, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Attention. My pleasure. It's been lovely. <laughs>
Clemency takes us on a journey from St Martin's School of Art to Giorgio Armani in Italy, describing the mentorship she received during her six years working with one of the masters of fashion. She explains her subsequent move to Calvin Klein in New York and draws us into the craftsmanship of minimalistic design before heading back to the UK to work at Burberry with the inspirational Rosemary Bravo, before heading off to Joseph and the genius of Karl Lagerfeld. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I'll be speaking with Kate Crossy, Head of Accessories and Footwear at Debenhams. Kate draws us in with an inspiring story that enabled her career to take off and which provided her with a 360 understanding of fashion, allowing her to design across multiple categories. If you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries.